0: listening to a RUA podcast created by St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Chantal Moyer. For this year's Lenten season, we decided to go back to a book we published in 2009 and offer it as an eight-episode podcast series to be released over the course of the season. The 2009 book, titled A Book for Lent, Toward What We Can Scarcely Imagine and Scarcely Refuse, was written by James Snyder, an American Lutheran pastor and a friend to St. Benedict's Table, with illustrations by Helen Lyons. The first version of these eight meditations was written in 2000 for use at St. George's Anglican Church in Halifax, Nova Scotia. With the exception of the first meditation, which was a sermon for Ash Wednesday entitled Atla, The reflections were all delivered on Good Friday, 2000, based on the seven words, or the seven sayings from the cross. Jim provides material of substantial depth, delivered with a bit of grit and with a storyteller's eye to detail, all offered up in the service of the Proclamation of Grace. In spite of the fact that these addresses were originally delivered on the two most solemn days of the Christian year, they are not without their touches of humor. As you listen, it will become more than a little clear that Jim Snyder is rather thoroughly committed to a perspective that says that in Christ, the grace of God has overcome all else. For this series, Jamie Howison will be reading the text of these meditations.
1: Otla, a sermon for Ash Wednesday. For many people, Franz Kafka remains one of the most provocative and haunting writers of the past century. And perhaps the most prescient, he was a Jew who lived in Prague but spoke and wrote in German and was thus doubly displaced, an archetypal resident alien. In 1910, he wrote a novel that concluded with the main character boarding a train bound for an unknown destination. It was a bright blue day. The hero was happy and innocently hopeful as he boarded that train. Yet it's an eerie scene, unsettling, a most unsatisfying conclusion to the story. It made me shiver when I first read it, and again when I reread it. There is no sense of resolution. It's just not there. This train, you wonder, why is he boarding it? And where is it taking him? The novel remained unpublished until after Kafka's death in 1924, and readers puzzled over it, wondering the same thing. Where on this bright blue day might this train be going? Of course, like most of Kafka's greatest work, this book was never finished. Perhaps if he'd gone back to it and finally completed it, the destination of this mysterious train would have been revealed. But he could not finish it. In 1910, he could not penetrate the great blue horizon in which that train disappeared. No one could, until three decades later. Kafka, as I said, died in 1924, but was survived by three sisters. And each one of them did live long enough to board that train and each one of them discovered where it actually went. The youngest sister is the one that interests me here. Her name was Atla. Although she shared her brother's tragic sense of responsibility for good and evil, temperamentally and neurologically she was his polar opposite. Kafka could see, Kafka could write, but he seemed unable to live. He could never really live, he could only write. Otla, on the other hand, could also see, but she could not write, she could only live. From her youth, she was impish and rebellious, passionate, willful. She grew into a dynamic spirit of a woman, a practical and political visionary. She was everything Kafka was not. What her brother wrote in those nocturnal hours, alone in his room, Otla lived in broad daylight, Out in the world, acting out his wildest and most impossible dreams throughout her life, especially at the end. She defied her autocratic father, as Kafka himself never could. She married a prominent Gentile and enjoyed a healthy life. Working the land and raising a family, she was free from the psychological tyranny that afflicted her brother. But then in 1940, the Nazis started rounding up the Jews. Fortunately, her marriage to an Aryan rendered her exempt from death. A curious status to have bestowed upon you, isn't it? That's what she thought. In fact, being who she was, she was repulsed. Her moral sensibilities made it impossible for her to accept this privileged status, In her eyes, it violated everything she believed in and even corrupted the very essence of her marriage. Inscrutably, yet inevitably, like one of Kafka's own stories, she thus formally divorced her husband, whom she loved, and became a Jew once more. No, if they are not exempt from death, then I will not be either, So having no choice, they rounded her up, too. But to give Otla a break, since they knew her, they sent her to the children's concentration camp at Terezin. There she worked and lived with the children for over a year. She could have weathered the entire war there. But then the day came when those children were invited to board a train bound for Auschwitz. Otla volunteered to escort them, and with them she went up a chimney to God. There are as many stories like this as there are souls that pass through that chimney. More than human memory can hold, but this one I remember, because it's as perfectly logical and utterly inscrutable and beautiful as anything Kafka himself ever wrote. And unlike most of Kafka's work, this one was not left unfinished. Otla, her name was Otla. This is someone I would have liked to have met, more than her neurotic brother. Him I know all too well, he lives in me. But this woman is an abiding mystery, Why would someone give it all up? Why would someone forsake spouse, children, community, security, freedom? Why would someone forsake life itself in order to join those who are not exempt from death and do it without any thought as to what might lie beyond? To willingly board that train, bound for a destination that was known in advance, and then walk into that gas chamber with those children. She didn't have to do that. No one took her life from her. She gave it of her own accord. Sound familiar? Who are these people who do this? What do they know that we don't? And how can this be so perfectly logical and utterly incomprehensible and beautiful at the same time? This is not a time to address those questions. This is a time to invite you to pursue them further and further as we follow a lowly Galilean on his journey to the cross. Those same questions will be asked of him too, but the closer we approach, the greater the mystery and the further our questions will recede. For it is not answers that we need. Answers come easy and cheap, but life, new life. The kind of life that comes only through encountering this one who went up a chimney for us. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. There is no escaping that. There is no denying that. But we have heard of something more and we are beckoned to follow the one who goes into the wilderness before us, goes through the wilderness with us, towards something that in the dim light of this new beginning we can scarcely envision, but scarcely refuse. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: That was Jamie Howison reading A Lenten Reflection written by Jim Snyder. Please consult the show notes for a link to a web post on which each episode in this series will be posted as it becomes available. On that post you will also be able to view some of Helen Lyon's artwork from the print edition of the book. The music for this series is by Steve Bell and is used with Steve's blessing and by the good graces of signpost music. If you would like to know more about our work or provide some support for our online ministry, please visit us at SaintBenedict'sTable.ca. I'm your host, Chantal Moyer. Thanks for Were listening. Were you there when they crucified my Lord?
1: Were you there when they crucified my Lord? causes me to try <laughs>